Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope you've all got your Christmas shopping in the bag, your bubbles sorted and you're not too depressed if you've been plunged into tier three this week. Of course, we'll all be missing Olympia this Christmas and so we're bringing you some Olympia memories this week with an interview with show producer Katie Marriott-Payne. It takes three goes at Olympia before you even have any idea of what you're doing or like, you know, how it runs and, and how to prepare for it because it's just a show like no other. I'll also be chatting to our news desk about an exciting change at badminton, temperatures when transporting horses and the cruel practice of soaring in the USA. Finally, vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine will be sharing knowledge on the nasty beasties that can live inside your horse. There are lots of worms that can affect your horse. There's almost 50 species in there. That's a lot of them. So that's enough of me. Gather up the reins and let's get going. Hello and welcome to this week's Horse and Hound guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. And it's that time of year when uh, native riders and producers and enthusiasts in general are kind of in the final stages of preparing for the big Mount Norland Supreme ridden final held at Olympia. And obviously this year, there's no final for us to enjoy. And, and with this in mind, I'm being joined by a leading show producer, Katie Marriott Payne, who's actually won at the Olympia Championship on three separate occasions, uh, most recently in 2017 with the Welsh Section B Cadland Valley Sandpiper. Um, so hi, Katie. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Hi there. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Good. And, and how does it feel for you this year not to be preparing for Olympia at the moment? I mean, I, I bet normally you'll be in the thralls of kind of making sure coats are right, ponies are fit. So yeah, how does it feel this year? Normally there's just so much going on and I'm trying to juggle getting ponies ready and Christmas and everything else that, that goes with that. So, um, yeah, it's really, really strange, like really strange because obviously we're still at the yard every day and doing ponies. But there's kind of like this just sort of big gap at the moment between the season that hasn't happened and, you know, hoping that next year is going to start up again. And yeah, this sort of big lull of oh, where's Olympia? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a bit sad. <laughs> And, and do you remember the first time you actually rode at Olympia? <laughs> yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> um, it, it didn't go too well. <laughs> uh, it was a very long time ago. And um, I kind of have this thing that I always say to people, it takes three goes at Olympia before you even have any idea ah. of what you're doing <laughs> or like, you know, how it runs and, and how to prepare for it because it's just a show like no other. Um, because of the time of year and everything else that's involved um, with getting ready for Olympia. It, it's, it's a very different show, which I guess ultimately is what makes it so special. Um, but yeah, my first time was not great. So memorable for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> which, which pony were you riding then, Katie? Um, it was a pony actually that I'd been given the ride on um, called Lemons Hill Limelight. And he was a little Section B stallion. And I just think, you know, if I knew then what I know now, it might have all gone a bit better. But uh, he was a bit on his toes and, uh, yeah, it wasn't disastrous. Don't get me wrong. I didn't fall off or anything, which is everybody's worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've certainly learned a lot since then and I learned a lot from him and, um, yeah, definitely benefited from, from bad times there as, as much as the good ones. So. 
And so your first win at Olympia um, was with the Exmoor, Stobrook Jenny Wren. And she's yeah. actually the only Exmoor to, to have ever won the final. And she was just a five-year-old at the time. So can you just tell yeah. me a little bit about her and, yeah, about that day she, she won Olympia? Yeah, for sure. So we only started Jenny um, under saddle at, in January of that year. And she just sort of took to it straight away. We had a really great partnership. Um, I think she probably was um, a little bit underestimated on the day because I don't think most Mountain and Moorland competitors don't really expect the Exmoors to, yeah, to to come up with the goods on the day because notoriously they, they find the atmosphere difficult. And, um, you know, it's usually sort of the flashier breeds that that um, tend to shine on the day. So I think from my point of view, we just went there to have a good day out um, and just show everybody what she could do. And um, yeah, it was as big a surprise to, to me and, and my team as, as everybody. But um, watching the videos back now, which I did um, this summer, because we've all had time to kind of reflect <laughs> on a few things. Um, I think, you know, she just was a really lovely pony and it was her day, so. We all need our day. <laughs> we do, for sure. <laughs> and you also won the final in 2016 with Welsh Section A uphill James Fox. And he was also yeah. the first of his breed of the Welsh Section A to win yeah. there. So an, another um, breed record there. So how did that feel to yeah get another tally on for, for those breeds who hadn't won it before? To be honest, I think having done it with Jenny and then everybody sort of was saying how special that was because she was the only one at the time and still is. And then I thought, well, let's do it with a section A. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I like this sort of breaking records. It, it was fun. Um, and so I actually, I was second and third with um, Delamy Destiny in 2007 and 2008. So he nearly was the first section A to win. Um, so it kind of just made me more hungry for it, really. Um, so when we had James Fox, he'd already got quite a good following, um, certainly within Welsh circles, because he'd won at the Royal Welsh twice in hand, and um, you know he was sort of he was doing well under saddle. Um, but he he was just one of those ponies that on his day was amazing, um, and certainly he loved the atmosphere of Olympia, which just gave him that extra lift, and he felt great on the day. Um, so I think he certainly was, was a pony that was worthy of, of being the first A, A to take that title. But yeah, it's really exciting. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then you came back the following year with um, Cadlan Valley Sandpiper, uh -huh. the Welsh Section B, and won again. And yeah, he, <laughs> he has an amazing record at Olympia, doesn't he? He's kind of been placed nearly every year he's, he's been there. And um, this was actually the first year you got to ride him at the final, wasn't it? And so how, it was. how was that for you? Oh, so special. Like He will always be probably the most special pony that, that I'll have. Um, I know people sort of say pony of a lifetime and, and I just think, well, I've been really fortunate to have a few that I could say that about. But Sandpipe is very special to me. He's such a character and he's been with me since he was a three-year-old. So watching him um, the year he was runner-up with his um, jockey, his own jockey, Catherine Scott, um, that was as special to me, really, as if I could have won it myself on him because, you know, it's great to be able to produce a pony for a child that can then go and do that. Um, but having the chance myself was, yeah, extra, extra special. Um, we just have a, a partnership that's just... Um, he's like a, a pair of slippers to me, you know, Aww. you just put your slippers on and off you go. And I trust him implicitly and I was well aware of his capabilities, so I knew on the day that he could um, pull all the stops out, really. 
So, yeah, it's, it's a good position to be in with a pony like him. And then you just have to hope that the judges appreciate him, which most of the time they did. So, yeah, he's, he's very, very special. Yeah. And after being so successful on different breeds, what, what do you really think goes into winning Olympia? Because obviously, as you said, it, it's such a different show and there's that opportunity to really, you know, ride a, a strong, solid show of your choice. So mm -hmm. what, what do you think goes into that um, performance element at Olympia? I think you need to be pretty confident with your pony's capabilities before you ever enter that ring. I think, you know, we try and iron out any issues long before we get ourselves in that situation because the atmosphere is always going to affect um, the riders and the and the ponies performances um, you know I mean I, I sort of like to think that I don't get too nervous on big occasions but you can't help the excitement side of things kicking in and so you just have to really prepare for every eventuality that you possibly can and obviously that does come with experience the more times you go the more you know what to expect which massively helps yeah but yeah but I think the fact that we get to do an individual show on the day, um, you can kind of play to your strengths. So, you know, if your pony's got a particularly good trot or a strong gallop, you get the opportunity to you can gallop as many times as you like and, you know, put as many tricks into your show if you want to. I mean, I quite like to keep, keep things quite straightforward with the Mountain of Moorlands yeah. and just try and perform a flowing show um, that's sort of well within their breed types. But um, just having the freedom to not have a sort of really short set show does um, enable you to, um, you know, play to your strengths and plan where you want to go and um, make the most of it, really. Definitely. And yeah, we all know that with, with horses and ponies, things don't always go to plan and uh yeah as we said this show has such an electric environment has there any been any time at olympia when things just haven't gone to plan for you um i remember you said about your first pony but has there been any other times where it just hasn't gone right and you've just thought yeah. oh god <laughs> i think the first twice they were both section b's that i rode there and they both didn't really cope with the atmosphere terribly well but you know looking back i was very um, young, inexperienced. Um, I probably didn't put enough preparation in at the time now. So, but like I say, it's just a massive learning curve. So I'm kind of grateful for that. One year when we took Sandpiper and we always ran him in um, aluminium plates. So I was working him at home the morning that we were about to leave to go to Olympia. Um, last minute preparation, last ride at home and all of that. And uh, he managed to sort of half pull a shoe off in the school. Oh, no. And it was a Saturday morning. And of course, you know, you can never get hold of your fire no. when you need to. And I was like, what am I going to do? The shoe's half on, half off. So that caused me like such a headache. I thought, I was like, what am I going to do? So I ended up having to try and get this shoe off on my own. I honestly think it's the most nervous I've ever been in my life. <laughs> so I managed to get the shoe off with his foot still intact, thinking, please don't be lame. And uh, we got there and actually the farrier at the show took the other shoe off for me. So he oh, brilliant. unplanned, unplanned <laughs> performed without his shoes. And actually we've never shot him since. He's oh, gone right. barefoot ever since because the stress was just too much to take. So <laughs> Turned out all right on the night. <laughs> yeah, that's why he doesn't wear shoes. <laughs> um, and, and you've obviously competed in the in the M&M Supreme Final at Olympia for many years. And mm -hmm. the, the competition has seen quite a lot of changes since you first started out. 
Um, so the final used to be ran by the National Pony Society and this was taken over by the British Show Pony Society, the BSPS, in 2011 and it's been run under their rules ever since. Uh, so certain aspects have changed, obviously. So um, the qualifying circuit is slightly different and they now have four judges at the final, um, to name a few yeah. changes. So, and Katie, how have, um, how have you noticed the final has changed and for how, how has it kind of developed from your perspective over the years? I think the fact it now gives more people the opportunity to compete there is amazing. Like It's fantastic to have 40 ponies that represent our native breeds um, and 40 riders having the, um, you know, the fantastic experience that it brings. So I think that side of it's great. Um, and the fact that now it's split down into three sections and we don't all have to go in. I think we used to have to go in originally as a whole class um, and, and do a go round, which was utter chaos yeah <laughs> so I, I don't miss that um at all i think now they present 10 prizes instead of six which is lovely because um you know even to be placed at all um, makes it really special um four judges i was a bit against the four judges at the start um but i can't really complain when it's it's done me quite well i yeah. think over the, over the years so clearly it's it's obviously working <laughs> um but the only thing from a negative point of view i don't like is the fact that four-year-olds can compete now whereas right okay under the national pony society system they had to be five and over to compete and i think that was probably a good thing personally because you know it gives you everybody something to aim at as the ponies mature but yeah the atmosphere's not changed um it's an incredible atmosphere out the back and um everybody's really supportive and I think because everybody's in the Christmas spirit, it makes it extra special. Yeah, they do always say it. it's not um, Christmas without Olympia. Um, no. <laughs> and just finally, Katie, what are you guys going to be up to this Christmas? And kind of, are you taking it easy? Do you head out hunting? What's, what's your plans? No, I'm planning to take it easy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Good decision. Uh, yeah, normally, obviously, um, we sort of, I'm, I'm usually fairly exhausted after <laughs> Olympia anyway um, so Christmas is a quiet affair but I've still got ponies to do here and dinner to cook and um, you know just trying to have some family time really um, I enjoy watching the racing on the telly and um, just putting my feet up so definitely yeah well thanks Katie it's been so nice to chat and yeah can't wait to see you at Olympia next year oh, thank you so much let's hope we can uh, yeah get back to normal times soon Thanks a lot. So I'm joined today for our usual roundup of the latest in the horse world by three of my horse and hound colleagues. So first of all, hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. What have you been up to, Eleanor? Uh, morning. Oh, well, I've, I've got a, probably a story with a moral this morning because I went out uh, for a ride in the fields next to the yard and my phone beeped and I took it out of my pocket and looked at it. And just as I did that, something, I didn't even see it, but I could hear its wings burst up from somewhere in the grass and my horse shot off. <laughs> and I'm just grateful it was that horse and not my other mare because otherwise I'd probably still be chasing around the fields now. Oh dear. So is the moral of the story, pay attention when leading horses? Yes, and don't look at your phone while you're riding, especially because all it was was a text from Asda telling me my delivery's coming tonight and I knew that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I had that in a warm up on the weekend, actually, when I was at my dressage show where um, it was quite a small warm up and there were about five people in it. And a girl had finished her test and she was just wandering around on looking at her phone and I nearly crashed into her. She nearly crashed into me and she was like, oh, sorry, I was just looking at my phone. And I was like, yeah, there isn't really room in here for, for that to happen, dear. If you want to look at your phone, take your horse out of the warm up. Um, but obviously I didn't say that. I just smiled nicely. Anyway, we also have Lucy Elder, our senior news writer on today. How's it going with you, Lucy? Hi, well, I've been slightly off games this week, actually, which has been, um, you know how I've injured myself a fair few times doing various things with horses. But this one was actually I went for a walk into town just to sort of lunchtime stretch my legs walk and somehow I managed to do something to my neck. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it was very painful and I haven't been, uh, I've been back on, I think I got back on yesterday on a horse. So she's been enjoying quite a lot of time outside and um, I've been sort of <laughs> reassessing about what I managed to do and uh, yeah, trying to get better because I didn't really want her help in uh, giving it any extra rearranging. So yeah. I have to say injuring your neck going for a walk is a new one on me. I'm quite mm. used to like people in horse and hound getting in touch and saying oh you know I fell off out hunting or there was one week when didn't you smash your face in hunting and our hunting editor Catherine nearly drowned out hunting in the same yeah. week a couple of years ago yes that yes you're right and and almost when well when you get on a horse you kind of accept that you know that comes with a risk but going for a stroll a stroll to boots perhaps wasn't um, I thought oh, wow how how has this happened but um yeah there we go Okay, well, moving on, Becky Murray, our news writer, is the third member of the team joining us today. What's going on in Scotland, Becky? Well, Chloe, my mare, has had a few well-deserved days off this week. Um, so actually, boringly, I've been trying to tackle housework. Um, as winter goes on, I seem to be accumulating more and more horse items inside. Um, my saddle lives in my office and I have feed bags in my kitchen. So I really thought I'd best tidy up before my partner thinks I'm feeding him chaff for Christmas. And were you at a show, Pippa, did you say? I was, yes. Um, I went to this unaffiliated dressage show last week and the sports pony was generally quite well behaved. He took a bit of a dislike to the sandbags that were being used to hold down the arena and the markers. He thought they were quite spooky um, and, and a good excuse not to really do his counter-canter right up to the boards. But in general, he was quite well behaved and uh, got, you know, good sports pony points and a few treats. Anyway, talking of arenas, we heard some really fun news earlier this week about badminton's main arena for 2021, didn't we, Eleanor? Yeah, so the main arena is going to move, uh, I was about to say this year, next year. Um, so the dressage and show jumping phases will both run in front of Badminton House, which is lovely. Yeah, I think this is such a such a good idea. I uh, was I have to say that because I'm maybe a little bit slow sometimes in my mind, the behind closed door bab doors badminton was still going to involve all the grandstands and trade stands being put up but being empty. And it was only about two weeks ago that I realised that that wasn't the case that they wouldn't be putting up all the grandstands and all the trade stands in order for nobody to be there. Um, <laughs> and then I started thinking, so what would the main arena be like? Would it just be like you know a little square in the middle of a field, which sounds kind of sad. Um, um, so I'm so pleased that they've come up with this so much better idea, which is a bit of a hark back to history, because in the first 10 years or so of the event, the main arena was in front of the house at Badminton before it moved to its its normal current location. So it feels like a really sort of nice sort of link with the past. It means that the winner next year will get some great and, and unique pictures in front of Badminton House. And I think this is a really good idea by the organising team at Badminton and, and nice thinking out of the box. And so good that it's going ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. 
Now, sticking with big eventing competitions in 2021, Becky, you've been working on a story about the eventing European Championships, and we've touched on the dual championship year concept a few times on the podcast. And the upshot of all the discussions was that show jumping and dressage are having a Europeans next year, as well as the Olympics, but eventing is not having a Europeans. That was announced a few weeks ago. We thought the story was over. Why has it come back into focus? So German eventer Michael Young put up a post on his social media recently um, asking the question, why can there not be the event in Europeans? He says we need it for the sport. And he also suggested Swiss venue Avanche would have been a good venue and has everything needed to hold a championship. Hmm, that's that's interesting. And we went back to the FBI, didn't we, and asked them about the interest in, in Avanche running the championship. What did the FBI say? The FBI said that it had been made aware of this, but no formal or informal expression of interest was submitted through the Swiss National Federation within the agreed time frame. And did the FBI tell you which other venues had put in bids and what sort of happened with that formal bidding process? Yes, so Harass Dupin in France and Mill Street in Ireland put in bids. There was a third, but it wasn't named and the FEI said because of the third organising committee's relative inexperience in hosting an event of the scale of the Europeans, it did not proceed to the formal applicant stage. Okay, and the two venues that we know did put in those formal applications, Harris Dupin and Mill Street, they didn't, neither of those came to fruition. That was what the FEI told us, wasn't it? That's right. Ultimately, uh, Harass Dupin and Mill Street voluntarily withdrew from the process uh, due to the limitation to hold the championships on the selected dates and the ongoing concerns around COVID. And following this withdrawal and on the understanding the Olympics would go ahead in 2021, the FEI agreed not to reopen the bidding process. Mm, thanks for explaining all that to us, Becky. This is kind of a tricky one because I feel it's such a shame that we're not having Europeans next year. There are so many countries who could field a team at both the Olympics and the Europeans. It would give younger riders experience. And of course, there are quite a lot of nations who aren't going to the Olympics. But I have to say, my sympathy is sort of with the FEI here. You know, they ran a process, it had a time scale, it had a deadline. And we, you know, they, they saw things through within that process. And I do understand that they can't reopen the bidding repeatedly if someone kicks off on social media. So I, I don't always say this, but on this occasion, I'm, I'm sort of standing with the FEI and, uh, and saying, you know, that the process went through and it is what it is now, I think. Now, Lucy, we've got a completely different story that you've been covering this week. We're talking about travelling horses and temperature, as in air temperature, not as in horses' temperatures. What is going on here? What's this story about? So this has been quite interesting. This is part of the DEFRA consultation on improvements in to animal welfare and transport, which Becky covered last week, actually, um, as it also features the proposals to ban live exports for slaughter. But as part of the consultation, DEFRA's mooted in there the suggestion that vehicles need to be fitted with a temperature regulation system if horses are being transported in temperatures that are below five degrees or above 30 degrees. And this is kind of, it's brought up quite a lot of discussion really. Uh, first of all, why? <laughs> um, secondly, is that already in place and we just perhaps aren't aware of it? And thirdly, what what do they actually mean by a thermoregulation system? So there's quite a lot of questions coming out there and it's been quite an interesting one to look into this week. Hmm. So Lucy, give us some of the detail on that. Are the rules already in place about temperature that most of us just maybe aren't even aware of? And, and what has been the reaction from those you've spoken to about this story? Give us a bit more detail there. 
So uh, I spoke to Roly Owers of Wild Horse Welfare and he said that, um, that the charity agrees that the temperature on a vehicle should be within a certain range to protect welfare and that minimum maximum temperature ranges already exist within current legislation. But the charity is not yet convinced that a thermoregulation system needs to be in place to provide this, uh, particularly in sort of small vehicles where shelter from the elements and body heat can be sufficient. Uh, I spoke to sort of several other experts as well. Uh, one who made a really interesting point actually uh, was Kevin Needham of BBA Shipping and Transport and he said that as as we all know as horse people you know horses horses temperature when they travel different horses need different rugs and that, that's whether they're in a horse box in the field in the stable depending on what they're what each individual's like we all know horses that will need the lightest of rugs in winter when they're traveling because they naturally get quite warm and we know horses that need you know a bit more so he was saying that he would hope that a common sense sort of horsemanship approach would you know firstly be the best approach because then you're getting the right thermoregulation system i.e a person with a selection of appropriate rugs for the horse and the weather conditions and you're not putting all horses that are on that box into the same you know same system if that makes sense they've got a tailored tailored and perfect solution for them he also raised concerns about whether if this consult consultation you know goes through and goes further because of course this is very much consultation stage and anyone actually can can get involved in it and send their feedback um what he would be very concerned about is if they said no, the rugs don't count as a thermoregulation system. We want you to have their box heated to a certain temperature. And he was raising concerns about the other welfare implications that could have if you're, you know, shutting off airflow and heating up a box with horses in that could lead to other, other illness and welfare concerns there. So this is quite interesting. And I very much focused on the the below five degrees area because that in the UK is is we get a lot more temperatures that are sort of closer to that end of the spectrum than the than the other end of the spectrum but it was yeah an interesting one and I'll be quite interested to see what some of the feedback is of this. Hmm. So if people want to get involved in that consultation at the moment, that's something they that the public can do at the moment? It is, yes. And we know that the people I spoke to, the British Veterinary Association, they are, you know, they're getting involved with it. World Horse Welfare is getting involved with it. And I spoke to British Horse Racing as well. And they've all welcomed the fact that, you know, welfare and transport is something that is, it's not a bad thing to be talking about and improving that. And it is something that they're all getting involved with as, as from their ends. But yeah, it is. It's an open consultation and it's open until the 28th of January, I think. So, so you've got a bit of time. OK, great. Thank you, Lucy. Eleanor, I'm coming back to you finally to talk about a welfare issue in the USA that I know you've been following for a while. This is about soaring and I'm not sure that that's a practice that all of our listeners are going to be terribly familiar with. So can you just kick off by explaining to us what is soaring? It's uh, it's not nice at all. It's what some trainers do to they. It's injuring horses' hooves and legs to produce the the big lick, which is this massively exaggerated high stepping gait, basically. Uh, which if you've seen Tennessee walking horses at shows. Uh, that's how they get that. And um, there have been a lot of efforts over the last uh, decades to try and bring this to an end. Um, the most recent one was the Prevent All Soaring Tactics Act, which would have amended the American Horse Protection Act 
and basically stamp, tried to stamp this out. But that, uh, I, as I under, I'm not an expert on the American political system, but I understand they've got two houses like we have. And this past act passed the House of Re Representatives last July, but then it got stalled in the Senate. Okay. And then more recently, there's been some sort of compromise suggestion put forward, but people can't agree on whether that would be better or worse for horses. Is that right? Yeah. So the um, some welfare organisations and figures in the Tennessee walking horse industry itself have agreed to this compromise legislation, which they're putting forward. And they say uh, they hope it will end soaring. But then a number of other, the, the US Humane Society and another, a number of other welfare and veterinary organisations believe that not only will it not work, it might actually make things worse. So they've got some concerns that the inspectors of who would look at the horses at the shows to, to try and check whether they've been sawed or not, they are concerned that these would be appointed by the industry itself, which has been described as the fox guarding the hen house. Um, they've got another a number of other concerns, like there would be less significance on palpation of limbs, which happens now to detect whether the horses are sore or not. Um, and they say that although these compromise deal does bring in tougher penalties for soaring, they say no one's going to get done for it anyway. Hmm, okay, so it sounds like quite a complicated situation if people aren't agreed on on what the best way forward is. But certainly, some action is needed for for the for the good of these poor horses who are sort of being deliberately injured for the sake of producing these exaggerated gates. It sounds awful. Yeah, I mean, there is hope that. So, and as I understand it, the reason it hasn't got to the Senate is is it has been blocked from going to a vote. So they they believe the past act. This is they believe that with Senate elections coming early next year that might make progress. But also there were some rule changes that were due to be brought in by the US Department of Agriculture four years ago when Donald Trump became president. He put that on hold. But now with Joe Biden coming in next year, there is hope that those rules might come back in and they would have a big impact, it's thought. Wow, interesting to see what's obviously been a massive mainstream news story this autumn about the American elections, possibly feeding into to our news world as well with this horse <laughs> welfare story. And thank you very much, Eleanor. I'm sorry it wasn't a very cheerful story to uh, end our news roundups for the year, but that is the end of our news roundup for today and the last news section of 2020. We've got a couple of podcast specials coming up in the next two weeks and we'll then be back to our usual format on the 7th of January. So thank you to all of our news team for your help in bringing so many varied and important stories to life this year. I look forward to being back with you all in 2021. And now it's over to vet Ricky Farr from Farr and Percy Equine for his top advice on worms and worming. Until recently, um, during the autumn and winter months, we had a few issues with regards to worm control. Um, there are lots of worms that can affect your horse, some of them worse than others. Um, in fact, Southstomins is a big group of worms. There's almost 50 species in there that can actually affect your horse. Okay, that's a lot of them. But some of them we're particularly worried about. And one in particular is called the small red worm. Now, We've advocated many times, and your vet probably will, to do worm egg counts. And worm egg counts are an absolutely fantastic way of looking at worm burdens in horses. And we would actively encourage people to do at least three worm egg counts during a grazing season to actually assess whether there is a worm burden within your horse. 
The biggest problem comes when you look at small redworms and you look at the life cycle. So the life cycle of from an egg to an adult in in the small redworm is anywhere between six to twenty weeks. Okay, it's quite it's quite wide. The problem is that they do something pretty quite funky, and it's quite 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 ingenious actually. These worms over the winter they're very aware in a natural normal environment within a normal wild horse during the winter months they're going to have a lower nutritional plane. Domestication has resulted in no change in the nutritional plane because we feed them exactly the same almost all year round but in the wild horse and the way that these worms have developed they knew that they weren't going to get as much nutrition over the winter. So what do they do? They bury themselves in the gut wall and they wait there. And they normally wait there until the nutritional plane starts ranking up again, which is normally within the spring. Now, when you're looking at, at worm eggs coming out of the back end of a horse, you have to have adults secreting or excreting the eggs. And we're just counting the eggs and we're getting a number. The problem we always had was whenever you pick up a pile of poo and you send it to your vets or you send it off to a lab to get it analysed, there's no way of knowing in that one small nugget of poo whether you've got it when there's loads of eggs coming out or when there's not. There's no guarantees and that you've picked it at the right time. You could pick a sample an hour or so later or before that and you could find a slightly different figure. So we always had a, an issue with regards to knowing how much burden there is in the horse itself. So when they bury themselves into the gut wall, it's even more of a quandary. The, these are what we term hyperbiosing. So they're sitting there in a semi-dormant state waiting. Now, they're not secreting eggs. So essentially, a lot of these worms can be buried themselves in the gut wall. The horse has loads and loads of worms in there, and you will know nothing about it. Now, normally, you don't know nothing about it until they all emerge, and these horses get acute diarrhea, weight loss, inappetence, they literally melt in front of your eyes. Quite often they're the really young ones and they're the really old ones. The really young ones are the usually don't have a potentially inadequate immunity, but we do see this a lot in really, really young animals. Um, or the really old ones have probably a wax and waning immunity to it. But in either aspect, these horses are undergoing changes within their gut because of the mass emergence of these worms from the gut wall. Now that makes the gut wall leaky. It leaks bacteria that is in the in the gut of a horse all into their normal cardiovascular system, which in essence can actually be fatal to some horses. Um, seeing this or what we term a larval sarthostomosis in a very young animal, uh, I think most vets have seen these ones, two, three-year-olds melt in front of their eyes, unfortunately die within a matter of two, three days if they aren't treated very well in the hospital environment all because we didn't know that they had the worm burden internally. Thankfully, now we have a blood test. There are a few things with regards to the blood test that you, you need to kind of be aware of. That It's only for horses over three months of age. Um, it shouldn't be done within four months of uh, a drug treatment called moxidectin, which is quite a common drug used within uh, worming treatment. So not within four months that, is what we term a quantitative test. So it'll give you an idea of the probability of the levels of burden that that one horse has. So by doing a blood test now, in conjunction with faecal egg counts over the grazing season, we're more likely to pick up the individuals that are more prone to colic or have higher burdens, and therefore we can we can treat those as they are. Rather than getting to the stage of where that you treat them, 
And in some cases, you treat them, you get a mass emergence. That horse almost crashes and burns in front of your eyes, ends up with profuse diarrhea, needs to be hospitalized and all things like that. If we know that there is already the burden there, there are some small things that we can do to help you out to ensure that we probably don't get to that stage or we can tailor the treatment or the worming program a little bit more to that individual to to prevent uh, the, the mass emergence or the mass problems that we're going to see. So the blood test is quite simple. Um, it's relatively cost effective. You need to do it as part of a strategic worming program. Don't just think the blood test or just poo samples or fecal egg counts are just done solely on their own. They all need to be done together. Speak to your veterinary practice. Get them to work out a strategic plan for you. Utilize worm egg counts. Utilize the blood test. And that plan which horses do need treating. And then try to avoid this big problem that we have with encysted redworms. Thank you, Ricky. Next week, we're going to be diverging from our normal podcast format to bring you a Christmas special. I'm delighted to announce that we've set up a Battle of the Disciplines quiz. Tina Cook and Gemma Tattersall will attempt to uphold the eventer's honour. Show Jumping is sending William Funnell and Scott Brash into battle and Spencer Wilton and Louise Bell are the chosen representatives from Dressage. I'm really looking forward to hearing this one and I hope you all enjoy it too. Don't forget to rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. And I'll see you next week for our Christmas quiz. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.